Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Nina Totenberg is coming to St. Louis on October 4th to speak at the Hyatt Regency at the Arch for the Justice Speaks Luncheon. Hosted by Legal Services of Eastern Missouri with support from St. Louis Public Radio, it's the first of a series of annual conversations about justice and civil rights. St. Louis Public Radio Justice Correspondent Rachel Lippman will moderate the conversation. Nina joined us by phone earlier this week. Nina, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Now, before we talk about the law, I have to offer my condolences for the death of your dear friend, Cokie Roberts. I'm yeah. sure I'm sure this has been a very difficult week for you. It's been a, a, a hard week, but but I can't honestly say it was a surprise to, a, at least to, to Lee, me or Linda Wertheimer. We've known for some time that this was going to happen, and uh, it, it was terrible when it did, and it was, it's a profound loss to us and to thousands of her friends and many more thousands of people who were touched by her, tens of thousands of people who were personally touched by her. Cokie really did the work of three people, I think, in her lifetime. And I don't think I've ever known anybody who was less selfish. Mm. She, she did not ever really have a selfish bone in her body, and she was the most gracious and giving human being I, I have known. Mm-hmm. And there has been such an outpouring. It feels like everyone in the nation, even kind of President Trump, um, ended up having to acknowledge just, just what a wonderful person she was. Of the outpouring that, that followed her passing, what do you think stood out to you the most? Well, President Trump actually wasn't very nice about her. He said she wasn't very nice to me, but I guess she was a professional. (laughs) (laughs) Which I guess for him is, I don't know. You're right. It's not very nice. (laughs) Um, I don't, I think the thing that stood out to me is how many young women said she mentored me, she helped me, she talked to me about this or that, she stood up for me, and um, and I was walking through the hall at NPR, and, and one of our young women said to me, you know, I thought I was the only one, and now I find out that there were hundreds. No, there were not hundreds. There were thousands. Hmm. There really were literally thousands of young women who she personally helped and took a hand with and led them to some extent in a way that they profoundly remembered. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing to think that she had time with all the things that she was working on, that that she had time for these personal moments with so many people. And she did. I mean, even a week before she died, days before she died, she was in the hospital. People didn't know that. She was emailing them and writing to them and uh, calling them to offer some help with this or that or the other thing and promising that she would be at the committed place the following week when she probably knew that she wasn't going to be at that point, but she hoped she would be. Hmm. There was a little optimism there even at the end. Yes. For for you as a personal friend, what is it that you will miss most about her? <laughs> I wake up every morning thinking of all the things I won't be doing with her, you know, going to the movies on Saturday night, um, cackling over the latest revelation or piece of gossip that one of us has, or depending on her and her depending on me as a, almost like a, a sister, in a sisterly way for emotional sustenance and for 
fun and for all the things that make life worth living. Mm-hmm. Now, so many of the tributes to her life mentioned the fact that you and she and Susan Stamberg and Linda Wertheimer have been referred to as the founding mothers of NPR. I was wondering, is that a label that you like? Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it makes it sound so old. <laughs> but I'm very proud that we were among the first at NPR and that we helped make it what it was. And in those days, they paid us so little that they couldn't hire a man for what they paid us. So that's why we were the founding mothers. We needed jobs, and there weren't that many jobs for women in those days. And so this was less that NPR had such great intentions and more sort of an accident of, of history right yes, there. Yes, it is totally an accident of history and, and unequal pay. So, nevertheless, we ended up with this matriarchy. How do you think that ended up shaping um, what NPR has become? Well, I think it really brought into NPR young women at a time when there still was a lot, a lot of discrimination. And, you know, Koki, Linda, and I sat right together. Koki and I sat opposite each other. And we really worked at... A, trying to get the pay better, and B, helping other women get jobs. And in fact, as Steve Roberts noted in his um, eulogy, she came to NPR after when they came back from Greece. He was working, he was a reporter for the New York Times, and he called me up and said, um, I'm, one, I'm Steve Roberts from the New York Times, and I'm wondering if. Uh, I've heard that there might be an opening at NPR, and I said, get me Koki's resume. Hmm. And, uh, and I met him outside NPR, grabbed the resume, and browbeat them into at least hiring her on a, dem- on a temp basis. <laughs> and you ended up being responsible then for her career at NPR. That's, that's amazing. Well, me and Linda. Linda knew her at Wellesley. Not well, but she did know her. And, you know, we... And then, and we did that for other people. At one point, Mara Eliason was away on a fellowship, and there was a job posted. I can't remember whether it was a covering Congress or the White House, and she wasn't there to apply for it. And we thought that it might be deliberate that they posted it when she was away. So I got hold of her in Germany and said, "You got to po- you got to apply for this." And then Koki made really clear, "You." you better not just have the good old boys fill this job uh, without talking to her. And she got the job. Wow. So this was women looking out for women. Yes. It's funny, the cliche of women in the workplace is that we're all stabbing each other in the back or, you know, just the, the cattiness that supposedly goes with women. It sounds like this was absolutely the opposite. You guys exactly. were looking Steve out for said, each other. Steve said in his eulogy, when he saw this happen, he said this was his first introduction to the Old Girls Network. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's awesome. <laughs> and it so, sounds like that network remained strong all the way up until the end. It did. It did. So let's talk about another famous friend. You go way back with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I read that she even officiated your second wedding. Um, you yeah. recently reported that she was undergoing treatment for pancreatic cancer. How is she doing? Well, I've interviewed her several times in the last uh, month. Uh, these were long planned events. Uh, she has, I think, 11 
public events in, in September. And every time I interview her, including an interview I did with her in Arkansas at the Verizon Center in front of 15,000 people, she's just amazing. I mean, she is really... I, I finally asked her at an interview I did last week in New York, I said, so why are you here? <laughs> you know, why are you doing this? And she, she said, you know... Um, it makes me feel better. I stop feeling sorry for myself, and I get up and go and do things. And it gets me going. And I basically, she said, this is part of living life. Hmm. Do you think she would continue to stay in her role if there was a Democratic president currently in the White House? I think probably not, but I wouldn't guarantee it. She says she'd like to do this until she's 90. She's 86, so who knows? Yeah. We need to take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Nina Totenberg. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, KWMU 90.7 FM. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation with Nina Totenberg. She's coming to St. Louis on October 4th for the Justice Speaks Luncheon, hosted by Legal Services of Eastern Missouri with support from St. Louis Public Radio. So let's go back to that conversation. It was recorded this Sunday, and here's her description of one of the cases coming up in the fall U.S. Supreme Court docket. That's the Hotlanta Softball League case. Well, there are a bunch of LGBTQ cases, and this is one of them. This involves a guy who um, had worked in Atlanta, in the Atlanta area, in one of the nearby counties, representing children in court uh, for the county. So being their guardian ad litem, essentially, and had done it very successfully and with very good ratings until um, the county found out that he was playing in a gay softball league and they fired him. And there's also a case involving somebody who is trans who was fired after he uh, told his employer that he would be coming to work, um, that he was trans and would be coming to work and wanted to be dressed in the uniform of a woman and and would be wanted to be addressed as a woman and would represent himself as a woman. So he was fired. So these are two of the cases that are before the court. And the issue is whether the the Title VII of the federal code that bars discrimination based on sex applies to either sexual orientation or gender identity uh, or both. Has the and court ruled on that issue before? No. Okay. So this could be absolutely groundbreaking whichever direction they go. Right. It'll either leave things as they are now, which is it, uh, it does not apply. Uh, although the EEOC had taken the position in the Obama administration that it, the statute as written applies to sex, um, the Trump administration has not taken that position. And um, I think the odds are that the court will 
not take that position, and it'll be up to Congress to change the law if it wants to. So the court would say that it is constitutional to discriminate against somebody in this way? It's not a question of constitutional. This is Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. So this is statute that barred discrimination based on sex. And the question is whether that statute, as written, applies to gays and trans people. Okay. And you think the court could well say it does not? Yes, I think that's a good, there's a good chance the court will say it does not. Okay. Let's but talk. I don't, I, you know, I never, I, n- I never say never. <laughs> I guess that's the thing um, about your beat. It's, it's kind of hard to predict what's going to happen on it. It's very hard to predict. But I think it's, if I were a betting woman, I would say it would leave the status quo. Nina, let's talk about the bigger picture. In the two and a half years that Trump has been in office, his administration has appointed nearly one in four of the nation's federal appeals court judges and one in seven of its district court judges. How big of an impact is that having on the judicial system? Well, it, it, I think we've not yet seen the entirety of that impact because most of these people have come on, many of them have come on in the last, for example, six months. But you're going to see a dramatic switch in the lower courts to a much, much more conservative approach. And um, a lot of the, not so many of the people Trump has appointed are very distinguished conservative scholars, but some of them are not. They are much more newbies to the system. And we're going to see how profound their impact is and whether what they do is upheld by the Supreme Court. But they will have a majority on most of the federal appeals courts, and uh, that will mean, you know, a, a direct change in approach on those, on those federal appeals courts. You mentioned these newbies. Have there been attempts to not confirm some of these people, or are these things yes, just sailing through? Yes, there have been very strenuous attempts, but since Republicans got rid of the, well, first Democrats got rid of the filibuster for the lower courts, then Republicans got rid of the filibuster for the Supreme Court. So there's no way as long as um, Republicans control the White House and the Senate, Mm -hmm. that any of these folks are going to not be confirmed. Moreover, this has been the number one objective of uh, the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, and he's made no bones about it. And I have never seen judicial nominees, controversial and uncontroversial, go through this quickly. He he has that train running on time and, and very fast. And almost nothing stops it. So you have to have actual defectors among Republican ranks. And that has happened very rarely. But it has happened on occasion, but very, very rarely. And so this pace that, that Trump is on at this point, this feels to you unprecedented in terms of how many judges he's getting in there? Yes. I mean, I think he's um, already named twice the number of federal appeals court judges or gotten confirmed as any other president at this point in his presidency. Wow. So you mentioned the Supreme Court. This is kind of the last um, stop. If if these lower court judges end up being um, very orthodox or unorthodox, I guess is probably more the worry. How worried should Democrats be at this point about Justice Ginsburg's health? They're worried. (laughs) Very worried. (laughs) I mean, I think that, you know, it's not overstating it that uh, she gets offered arms, legs, kidneys, whatever she needs every day. But I mean, it's, it's a it's a it's a metaphor, but it's um, I think Democrats and liberals are, you know, 
are extremely worried. Let's talk worst case scenario for Democrats. Let's say something does happen to her and she can't continue to serve. Could the Democrats pull a Merrick Garland here? No, they don't control the Senate. Unless they win control of the Senate next year uh, in 2020, um, there, there's another almost two years we have to go until the next president, whether it's Donald Trump or somebody else, is uh, sworn into office and a new Senate is sworn into office. Democrats do not control the Senate. That means they cannot control what gets to the floor. Mm-hmm. And they have no way of stopping what gets to the floor. So switching from the national to the personal, I was doing a little research into your bio, and I found a couple of interesting tidbits. The first is, the thing that absolutely shocked me, is that you yourself are a college dropout. And I saw that you had said that you weren't doing brilliantly, and that's why you decided to to opt out from that. Would you advise um, other students who aren't doing brilliantly? Do you think it's a good move to drop out? You know, if you read that, you read something wrong. That's not why I left college. I left college because I was bored and I wanted to be a reporter. And that's I a mean, good reason it, to leave, yeah. Yeah, it, that's a good reason, was a good reason for me to leave. Now, my prospects were not great at the time, not because I was a college dropout, but because I was a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't ever advise anybody to drop out of college. I think, you know, it, it's more and more important to have that box checked. But it is true that reporters are slightly anarchic in personality or anarchistic in personality. And so, you know, they sometimes uh, blow a different way than other people. The wind blows them a different way than other people. And there, you'll find that there are a fair number of, of uh, journalists who dropped out, and there are a fair number who got advanced degrees. Yeah, it's a good mix of both. Mm-hmm. One other interesting part of your biography, I saw that you're the oldest of three sisters. How do you think that's shaped who you are? Well, it's great to have sisters. I mean, not when you're younger. You want to kill them all. Um, and, but as you, in your adulthood, they are the closest people to you. They are the people you lean on and who lean on you. And I have wonderful sisters, both of them very accomplished one of one of them is a federal judge, and the other has her own business in New York. And um, I'm very proud of them, and they're proud of me, and that's about everything. I, you know, they mean the world to me. Nina Totenberg, legal correspondent for NPR. Nina, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Nina Totenberg is coming to St. Louis on October 4th. She'll speak at the Hyatt Regency at the Arch for the Justice Speaks Luncheon. It's hosted by Legal Services of Eastern Missouri with support from St. Louis Public Radio and moderated by our own Rachel Lipman. It will be the first of a series of annual conversations about justice and civil rights. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.